Cherry Developer News, episode number 73 for Monday, December 30th, 2013. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. And this is the last one of the year, clearly, because we couldn't do another one tomorrow, because um, we won't. How about that? Um, yeah, so we got a lot of interesting things this week. Um, interesting stuff going on. I want to start off, though, with a little bit of a mini rant. And this is like, you know, the life of a programmer who likes to play with toys. But... Um, Joel, have you looked at these smart watches yet? You know, I've been holding off. I looked at the Pebble watch when it was on Kickstarter. Yeah. And it looked really cool. But then, you know, theoretically, Apple's coming out with a watch. And since I have to buy everything, including the iSombrero that, <laughs> that Steve Jobs makes, you know, I sort of i am holding off. <laughs> well, you know, so, all right, let me tell you what I did. So I got a little extra money, um, Christmas gifts and such. And uh, I th- said, you know what? I want to play with one of these smartwatches. And I, I went into Best Buy with all, only the intention of picking up the Pebble. This was uh, the day after Christmas. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, this is a couple days ago. So I go in and I look at the Samsung gear and I'm like staring at it going, that's so beautiful. And I'm playing around with it. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, you know, that's really not a bad item. You know, it looks pretty cool. Now, again, looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So I picked the thing up. And mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I had it for exactly 11 hours. Nine of which <laughs> was were a watch, I, so you could tell how long you had it. Uh, <laughs> and nine of which were when I was asleep <laughs> and uh, or tossing and turning going, why did I buy this $300 watch? And uh, I looked at it. Okay, so I put a little blog entry on Rimple.com about it because if it, it's not a work item uh, thing, but it's worth talking about because it's kind of funny where the, the state of these things is. Do you remember when digital cameras were brand new and yeah you know, i was the geek that had the digital camera right i had to have it you push the shutter button and then like five seconds later it took the picture <laughs> but he, hey wait a minute i thought we were done already and and then you know you get like 12 pictures you know right, right. um at you know 640 by 480 pixels is that where we are with watches now pretty much now here's the funny thing would you need three gigabytes of ram on your wrist yeah, wow, that's a lot i'm not even sure how your phone has that for what right i mean it's the same amount of ram that the Galaxy Note 3 has. Wow. Now, okay, that's cool. If I wanted to replicate my entire phone in a watch. Right. <laughs> okay, that's that's number one. Like, why? You know? So, could they have maybe kept a couple of the banks free and put a battery in it that lasted more than 24 hours? Oh, uh, yeah. That's a, that's a con. That's weird, right? Secondly, there's a camera on it. Okay, Dick Tracy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the camera's on the front of the watch band. So if you're looking at your wrist as, as if you have the watch on, the camera is just below the band start, like maybe at, at the side of your, your bone of your wrist. So you have to aim your aim your watch at someone like you're going to do a kung fu move on them. <laughs> <laughs> so they immediately, they take a defensive stance That's to right. block yours. Hanagul <laughs> set neck. Yeah, so... Um, so you're sitting there and you've got the thing ready and you have to tap on it to take a picture. Okay, that's that's weird. Um, everything's touch-driven. So the band can't be replaced. And so the deal breaker for me, not only was it the fact that like 24-hour battery life, really? Um, here's what the deal breaker was. There's a giant clasp, exactly 180 from the watch at the bottom of your wrist. Now, if you've ever typed on a MacBook Pro or anything- yeah, Scratch it to bits. You scratch it and, and, and your hand is up by almost a half an inch. Yeah, yeah. Ergonomics? So anyway, so I looked at that. I said, no, nah, this is just not the state of... I mean, it's cool. It's neat. If it was smaller, had a battery, it lasted almost a week. I could live with that. Mm-hmm. You know, and and 
I, I don't need it to have a camera on it. I would like to use a decent armband. So wristband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I ended up picking up the Pebble. Um, I was going to get the Sony because there's a Sony smartwatch too. That's mm-hmm. supposed to be decent, but you know, it's just another heavy, you know, not that great battery life. So I'm playing with the Pebble. It's pretty cool. Um, turns out that the deal breaker for me, the real deal breaker for me, besides getting rid of it from a jewelry perspective was um, that it also has a closed SDK currently. Oh yeah, no, that's no fun. Can you imagine? Like, so Samsung comes out with this Galaxy Gear Watch. It's written in Android. It runs Android. You can root it and put Android. Now, do I really want to put like an Android screen tool on right. it? No. Yeah, no. So, but I don't care about that. What I do care about is pushing an APK to it, pushing a an Android program to it. Because why not write something on a new platform? Sure, sure. Go up and you can't find anything. You Google. It's a closed platform. It's invite only. Like the fail. Yeah, yeah, that's too early. Yeah, they should have they should have waited, but I guess they're in such a rush to get these things out. Right now, the Pebble's not perfect either. I mean, you know, the thing that I think is the cool little feature is it's waterproof. So if I'm like, you know, in the shower or something, I can keep the stupid watch on and uh, pause a podcast or do whatever I want to. You can't talk to it; doesn't have a mic in it. You can get text messages from it, but you have to scroll through everything in one message to get to the next one. So there's definitely a lot that could be done better. Uh Um, But yeah, they're just not ready yet. I mean, I think two, three years minimum of iteration before even looking at another one. And I think the Pebble's fine for now. It's cute. It wasn't that expensive for what you do with it. And, you know, you program it in C. Uh So I could get out my Kernigan and Ritchie book. (laughs) (laughs) maybe i'll wait for google glass (laughs) i would wait for google Uh, yeah that's true all right well why don't we start then so uh let's see we'll start off with one that i just picked up uh this afternoon at z coffee shop hiding from my children on uh their last break days uh digital ocean which is a cloud provider um they actually have an api that has something called destroy in it to get rid of a volume on your vm Mm-hmm. it doesn't destroy the data. Mm. So another customer can grab that non-destroyed VM, which with the volume is running on an SSD. I think the reasoning and reading through the, some of this stuff, they might have done this, is because of the you know the leveling features of SSDs. If you keep wiping disks a lot, you're going to kind of t- take the life out of the disk. Um, but when you see the word destroy in an API, I think you probably feel the same way I do, I'm guessing, Joel, which is I don't want anyone to ever see anything in that Disc. Correct. Yeah. I don't like the comment that was on this thing, which is, I am able to recover previous customer data. Yeah. That the from somebody who uses a cloud provider, not DigitalOcean, but yeah, that's not that's a foul. So this is interesting. If you read, uh, this is like a customer support one hundred one thread to read. Um, it's on GitHub.com slash fog slash fog, uh, and it's the issue. Uh, what number is this issue? I'll post in the links. Twenty five, twenty five. If you're kind of browsing around, um, and it really isn't Fog. What I guess this Fog Creek software. I have no idea what Fog is, but um, it's a project called Fog from a uh, API uh, project leader uh, GitHub account called Fog, and they go through this back and forth. Originally putting the message out there saying that Fog was the problem. But then someone from DigitalOcean comes on board and they say, I'm from DigitalOcean and, you know, I work on this. I work on behalf of them. Um, I've been talking about this issue on Twitter and all sorts of stuff, trying to deal with it once people lodge a complaint. And it's this back and forth that goes on between him and the other developers. And uh, the most interesting thing is they first start out saying, look, this is documented. It even says on the website that when you go and use the web URL, uh, to go to the admin tool and, and destroy, you have to check a box that actually wipes the data. Mm. And it warns you, it's, it's scrub data is the actual flag. Uh, it warns you. 
the API call itself is just called destroy. And in the documentation of the API call, it picks scrub data. The issue is that the default mode is to opt into scrubbing data. No other storage provider does this to you. Mm-hmm. So that's just bad, right? Um, and I think it was just completely unintentional. Obviously, the developers missed it. Um, usability probably missed it. And now someone's actually calling foul on it. And the first reaction is, well, this is how it's written. And then everyone's saying, you know something, no other cloud provider does this, you know, uh, and he keeps pushing back like, you know, this is very important. You know, I will be very, very quick with the team, but everything works in 24 hour cycles. So, you know, this stuff is happening midnight, 1 a.m. And he's like, I'll get to it first thing in the morning. And someone said, you'll be dead in the morning. You know, your systems will be gone. Uh, people will be dropping you like flies in the morning. And that's that. that is something to think about is if you don't think about what the intentions are of things that critical, um, that could have some very big negative uh, situations for you. Yeah. So just an interesting read. I think they got it. I'm sure the, the, the team at DigitalOcean is jumping on it right now. Um, but just an interesting thing to read. If you're providing software for people and you want to see how you're represented out there, um, and what the results are from certain things you say, it's kind of an interesting thing to read up on. I really have no negative commentary about what the guy did. Um, it's just kind of like, this is what happens when you put something out there that is such a high visibility item, which could potentially compromise customer data. So that, that one I thought was an interesting read. All right, Joel, are you a tool user or are you a conversationalist? Now, this is Dan Boykis from Chariot. Sent me this email this morning and um, give a shout out to him because it was a fun one to read in the morning. Um, we might actually do a show on just in general some of this stuff because it's it's a really good discussion point to have. And it'd be good to get some of Chariot's developers on record talking about some of their best tools and techniques. I think it'd be fun to do. Um but uh, yeah, so tool user conversationalist. This is from uh, bovine.net, pgbovine.net, um, two cultures computing. Uh, and in, so, you know, when I started out using computers, we didn't have a GUI, right? We only had toggle switches and, and so, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> well, close the teletype. Right, the teletype. <laughs> we, we had a Commodore 64, but that, you know, that's about as bad as it got. But um, with big blocky function keys, and you only had eight of them, that's how poor we were. And, um, but we had to write things in, in basic code, right? I mean, we started out, uh, you started a little later than I did, but you still had the same kind of thing, right? What was your oh, first yeah. computer? Yeah, uh, well, I owned an HP 150, which is a really obscure old computer. Actually, HP 25. Anyway, my dad worked for Hill Packard, so. That's right. Even when I was a little kid, we got all kinds of crazy old hardware that competed with, like, the uh, IBM PC Junior and, like, you know, really old stuff. Right. But uh, we never did go the Commodore route because, you know, we're HP, but uh, I, I would hack those in school and stuff. Right. So, so I guess the thing is that, uh, you know, they're looking at this and saying tool user cultures or user culture versus programmer culture. And I actually have a different take on this, but let's kind of go through the article first. So the two cultures schism they're talking about here is that there are a lot of people that think of software as tools for getting something done. So like Word for writing reports, you know, this guy's mentioning um, Spotify for music, camera app for taking selfies. I guess you could take that a little further and say, you know, Eclipse for writing software. Um, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and then programmer culture, we have a conversation with our software, right? It's an agent that does things for you. So Git, for example, you're conversing with Git all day long when you do software development, right? Because you're going to do a Git clone and you're going to, or you know, get your repository out. You're going to do a Git branch to work on a feature. 
you know, add things to the branch, commit them, commit frequently, maybe even branch again, and you're communicating using the command line tool. Or, you know, if you're doing, you know, searching of things, you're probably going to go to the command line, do grep and things like that, depending on the, on, on you as a, as a developer. Um, and then there are other developers that use more of a graphical interface. Well, I found um, people being, you know, command line conversationalists, there are less of them in training that I run into. And there are more people doing things like with the tools themselves. Uh, whereas I think people, you know, work for Chariot, a lot of us have grown up around communicating back and forth with software, tweaking things, refining things, asking questions, finding bugs, fixing things with patching, like in a command line way more. Uh, you know, what do you take about? I mean, I don't know if this is really even a big, it's not a controversial thing. It's just more of an interesting kind of difference in style. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to still kind of understand uh, what this author, uh, who is an assistant professor of computer science at University of Rochester. Yeah. Let me, kind let of me, interesting, yeah. Yeah, let me give you a little, uh, like, an angle on this. So where he goes from this is he's trying to teach a bunch of people how to do something. And, uh, you know, pop, pops open his shell. He's like, I'm looking for uh, a way of finding a particular thing like the word widgets in a bunch of Python files. So he gets out fine, you just find dot minus name, you know, startup high, and he cuts it through XRGs to grep to widgets. You know, so he's looking for widgets in there and trying to find out where they are. And uh, then he said, well, you know, in, in the class, you've got Windows users who have no idea what this stuff is, or you've got, you know, users couldn't run Mac, so they had to run, uh, I'm sorry, Linux, so they had Macintoshes. And sure, they have the terminal, they have Bash, but their preferences are all different and their colors of their monitors are different. And like, it's just hard to get everyone kind of on the same page because they're so not familiar with communication through command lines that they're completely lost. Um, I don't really know what the actual. <laughs> <laughs> Do I? I mean, it's true that, that it's programmers are used to using a shell and you can be really productive with it, but it's also true that that is a completely archaic, strange language where, you know, but I mean, that's kind of like, um, it's certainly not natural. You have to learn quite a bit. Like Shell is extremely powerful, but it also, you know, is like they say in this thing, it largely hasn't changed since we put, you know, men on the moon. So it's it's a pretty old technology. Well, let's think about it this way too. That's right. He does mention that in there too. Um, and actually, apparently there's, a, there's an essay from Joel on software called Biculturalism. Um, it's an essay on that. I might as well throw that over there as well. Um, and I guess it's the biculturalism of Windows versus Unix users. It's kind of the same concept here. Um, you know, when you use IRB, you know, or you get into the, the Rails console or gro the Groovy console or anything like that, you're also having conversations. You're asking eight questions to your APIs. You're probing things to find out what's going on. You're hacking, essentially. You definitely have a lot more flexibility. And so maybe it is more that what he's talking about. I mean, obviously, when you're using a GUI, you know, you're when you have. I mean, it's it is the same thing with the command line, but the command line is way more flexible. When you're using right. a GUI, obviously, you have the checkboxes that the person thought you would need. You know, you don't have flexibility to just do whatever you want. Yeah. So it is interesting to think of the command line as a conversation um, versus you know a, a UI as a tool that's more static. Um, right. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I think also what comes from it is you know as you become expert in the language or the API or whatever you're doing. You'll know enough to have those conversations, but getting started, I mean, where the hell do you start? You know, if, if someone says, here's the IRB, you're a brand new Ruby user, um, get a Rails app built in a week. Um, you, you can't do it all from IRB, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you need to have some sort of helpers like they have with their script generators and stuff like that. And then, sir, once you've got the, the overall platform going, you can learn from patterns of watching how other people code. But 
I mean, um, I do, I do think, you know, I've definitely, there's met programmers who have basically no real familiarity at all with the command line. I do think that's a huge hindrance. Like I yeah. think getting really good at the command line um, is important because there's so many things that happen there. There's, you're so much closer to the operating system and things like that. Um, so that I certainly feel is true when you don't have that mm. as a programmer that definitely holds you back. If all you can do is, you know, how to, you know, for instance, take for example, like, uh, deploy something through Eclipse's, um, abstraction on top of an app server where you just, yeah. yeah, you're like, you're, you're a couple levels removed from what's actually going on. True. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I think it is a very important thing to pick up. The, the trick I guess is though, to get people into that. Like I found with JavaScript, I really didn't click with JavaScript until I started getting into the console. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, until you really forget the breakpoints and they're useful, you know, to find out what's going on roughly, but to figure out what's, what's in the global namespace, you know, what are the methods that are available to you? Like trying different things interactively and, and seeing what the results are. That's really how you learn the guts of what's going on. So it's just an interesting uh, thing. If you're, you know, if you listen to this and you're getting started in programming, you've been mostly an IDE person, find out what the command line tool is of choice for your language, for your platform and see if you can learn it. Cause it's a huge help. I remember even back in Java EE days, I was the big bean shell freak. You know, I would set up bean shell as a servlet on my, my application server and I could interact with the EJBs right from a command line and try running business logic. And it saved so much time. That uh-huh. was even before JUnit existed where you're actually just probing to find out what, does this thing work? What happens if I throw errors into it? And I had a lot of bean shell scripts that ended up becoming kind of like the rough idea of how I would use the API before JUnit existed. So it was nice to then slap those in a JUnit test and then I had my interactions. So kind of cool. Oh. All right, we've beaten that topic to death. Uh, <laughs> we'll make the other ones go a little faster, I think. Um, so that's that one. Um, now, Apple just released a bunch of videos um, for developers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you have a developer account. I do. I'm just going to pop in here and, and explain what they are. Um, it's a lot of things for iOS 7. So if you're an iOS developer and you want to learn various things on iOS. I'll just kind of read through a few of these. So this is from the developer.apple.com website. Um, things like Apple Store distribution and marketing for apps. Um, there's a two-parter on architecting modern applications. There's one on architecting modern iOS games, which I'd love to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, developing 2D games with the sprite kit. That's kind of cool for like side shooters and stuff like that. Um, hidden iOS 7 development gems. Um you know, integrating iOS game technology, system technology, security and privacy, user interface design for apps and games. Um, so there's like, I guess it's like about 20 of them. Um, and so if you get a developer.apple.com account, uh, you can take a look at these. Um, if you're an iOS developer, go over and check them out. They could be useful for you. In fact, there's even one OpenGL uh, ES3.0, which I think is a new protocol for programming graphics. So a newer version of OpenGL. So interesting stuff. Yeah, it looks good. Yeah, that's a developer.apple.com slash tech talks. And there are videos there. Um, We talked a bit about Grunt in the past and uh, Grunt being a JavaScript build uh, workflow engine. And so there's a really nice, um, I guess this must be Brian Merrick. Let me see. No, he's Merrick Christensen. I'm so off. Uh, I am Merrick underscore is the actual website logo. MerrickChristensen.com. He has a really nice overview of using grunt.js to build JavaScript applications. 
Um, and so he basically starts talking by talking through a workflow. Um, he's going to have a source folder where everything sits in the source folder for the application. There's a tests folder, kind of like the way we do things in Maven, you know, um, steps you through setting up grunt, um, setting up the package.json file, which is NPM's way of, you know, package manager's way of installing software. Um, tells you how to set up uh, a grunt task that does JS hint. Um, and then one that does kind of uh, looks like uh, what else? Um, Mocha testing, which is kind of like a test runner. Um, and then he shows you how to build custom tasks as well and kind of tie them together. So if you've never actually programmed in grunt, it's a nice, you know, like four page tutorial uh, printed out. that will get you started in that. So that's at MerrickChristensen.com. Excellent. Yeah. I need to get into Grant. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing a lot of JavaScript, if you're suddenly starting to build like, you know, mobile JavaScript apps or, you know, a full JavaScript front end, I think it's essential. If it's just that you're using jQuery on a page, it could help you. But um, in fact, as a side note, I'm working on some training and one of our customers for this training doesn't use Node and they're they're building uh, app- applications in JavaScript. And so I ended up having to find a way of running things like um, Selenium from Maven. And there actually is, believe it or not, there's a Selenium Maven plugin. I was I was surprised. It's been around for a couple of years, and not Selenium. I'm sorry, not Selenium. I meant um, uh, Jasmine. Hmm. There's a hmm. Jasmine, which is basically Jasmine's like a unit test runner, and uh, there's a Jasmine unit test runner for JavaScript that'll run in Maven. Uh, I was surprised by that. So I've actually been working with that a little bit, and I'm getting pretty far with getting that to work for a build. So, but you know, if you don't have that, and you don't want to sit and hack forever on that, you want to kind of go where the future is in JavaScript development, definitely learn Grunt. All right, what else do we have here? Hey, do you see this one down here? Um, Dual booting your Android device with Ubuntu. Really? Yes, take a look at that one. It's on uh, wiki.ubuntu.com slash touch slash dual boot installation. We'll post post the link on chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. Um, but it's basically talking about how to dual boot. Cool. Isn't it great? That's really cool, actually. So here's what you need. So before you go, wow, because I, I went, wow, I went, mm. um, yeah. you need a Nexus 4 or another supported Nexus device. And let's see what the list is there. Um, well, I don't know. Oh, this is so cool. Click on that other supported Nexus device section. It goes oh. through and lists all of them. Samsung Galaxy S3. <gasps> Dude, I have one. Nice. My kid cracked it open and I fixed the, fixed the screen, but it's pink. And so I got it back. <laughs> so I can have a pink Linux machine. Um, Galaxy Note 2 looks like it's up there. So that's cool. But anyway, so you could basically put Ubuntu on it and probably fill all of your disk space up. Um, but that's cool. You actually get a desktop. Um, you know, you get development tools and all sorts of cool stuff. And you can have basically a little mini computer. And apparently you can get phone calls to work in Ubuntu. Wow. Isn't that cool? It's very cool. I'd like to see it. Yeah, we gotta we gotta kidnap the chariot. Um, one of chariots Nexus fours. Yeah, somebody could hack it and then we could play with Ubuntu Touch. Oh, that'd be cool. All right, on my list of things to bug. All right. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, and I guess the last one we'll, we'll make it a little shorter since we talked a lot in the beginning. Um, I'm my Angular JS uh, weekly rant. So, <clears throat> one Bitcoin. One Bitcoin, exactly. I wish I had a coin to drop in a pill, little box. Uh, on December 20th, uh, this was uh, written by, who was this person here? Codeorbits.com. Not sure who that is, but um, this is talking about um, AngularJS prototyping and faking out the backend in an actual runtime. 
by using the HTTP backend mock object. Now, the interesting thing about this is HTTP backend, it's a layer on top of, um, I'm sorry, it's, it's the thing that HTTP delegates to. And so normally it will delegate to it and it will go to a real web service, but you can actually swap it out with the one from N from the NG mock module and throw that one in instead and mock your back and forths. So you, as you build up your front end, you could be emulating the back end. And then when you get the real back end, you start swapping things out with the real stuff. It's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Pretty cool. So I won't go through the code with that, but uh, that's at codeorbits.com. It's from uh, December 20th and the title is rapid angular JS prototyping without real backend. All right. I'm still very pleased about our new website. Um, and most people say, don't brag about your website, but what the heck I'm gonna, um, <laughs> <laughs> mostly for the podcast actually, because we've been able to move all our podcasts over to chariotsolutions.com slash podcasts. Um, we have a really nice front end. Now you can take a look at it and play them right from the main page. Um, you know, we've made sure all our tags and keywords work. So if you're curious about a particular topic, um, you go to the developer news or any of those podcasts and you click on things like, for example, uh, Postgres SQL, you'll get all of our content, uh, you know, in any podcast, uh, that has anything to do with that keyword. So, you know, I did things with like, for example, Xcode and I get what, how many back I get a whole page of them back. So if you're curious, go take a look at that. Um, we will be posting a few training courses up there as well under uh, the Chariot Solution homepage. You can click on training. Uh, looks like in the beginning of 2014, we're going to have at least one spring course sometime on course spring. And we'll definitely have a course in AngularJS, which is now moved into being a two-day course with full labs. So look for that sometime in the late winter. If you want to get a hold of us, you want to see the show notes, you can hit chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. You'll find our Twitter addresses right there on the page. You'll be able to post comments directly onto our forums down below, uh, and you'll be able to get all the show notes right from there. And certainly you can subscribe from iTunes or RSS. The information is right on that single page. And if you're curious about the other podcasts, again, it's slash podcasts. While you're there, take a look at the other uh, options on the blogs, podcasts, and screencast page to find screencasts we've done from the data IO uh, show just a couple months ago from Philly Emerging Tech 2013 and a number of others. And our blogs are now in the same place as well. So if you go to the blog, you have all you know five, six years of blog articles on a wide variety of topics, and they're very, very popular. All right, Joel, so I think that's about wraps it up. Um, anything on your end you want to announce or talk about? Yeah, I think uh, that sounds good. The new website is very snazzy. It ain't like bad. It. And it was shout out to uh, Slurve, Tom Rose. Good job, man. All right, that's it. So for the developer news for episode number 73, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. Make it a great week.